I have a very clear memory of the day we ran into Mrs. Nash, my kindergarten teacher, at the grocery store. She was the much beloved Mrs. Nash for a host of reasons, but primarily because she was the equivalent of winning the kindergarten lottery, and she was my teacher. Mrs. Nash was well known throughout the elementary school because she wore bunny slippers to school every day. No matter the weather, Mrs. Nash was always teaching and strolling the halls in prime bunny slipper fashion. Now, this only became a problem when we ran into her in the real world, and she was not wearing her bunny slippers. I was upset, I was confused, and my parents had quite the time explaining to me that she was a real person and did not live in the classroom and could wear whatever she wanted to the grocery store. It seems hilarious now. This kind of realization, this kind of gaining full understanding comes with an eventual maturing of a worldview. We could think of countless examples that fall into this category, both that we have experienced and that we have witnessed. But this morning, I want to think about a different kind of change that happens in relationships. I want to invite you to spend some time reflecting on the kind of change that comes with a struggle. A struggle that one would never ask for, but the kind that moves you into deeper relationship in the end. A young woman, whom we'll call Samantha, recently shared her story with me. She was a college athlete, albeit on an intramural sports team, and had stayed close with those friends, despite moves, marriages, and the inevitable changes that life brings. One day, Samantha got a call that one of her teammates had died. There was no accident, no disease, just a completely devastating reality of a life ended too soon. Graduates of their class made plans to travel to the funeral. It was a surreal day, laying to rest a friend whom they had not had the chance to say goodbye. Samantha shared without reservation. The theology at the funeral was terrible. The hymns were entirely inappropriate for a room full of grieving young people and they walked out of the sanctuary in a haze. For several hours, they made pleasantries with others who attended the funeral and regaled their parents, their teammates' parents with stories. But it was later that night that everything shifted. Sitting around a fire pit, Samantha shared first. She shared of the regret she had about losing touch with her teammate. Then she turned to another teammate and apologized for missing his father's funeral several years earlier and how she often thought about how she should have been there that day. When she was done, another teammate shared his regret about how life had gotten too busy and he failed to check in on his old friend. He looked to those gathered and made a commitment to do differently with each of them. What took place over the course of the next two and a half hours was the kind of sharing that hadn't happened in decades since they had spent most of their waking hours together. And sharing this story, Samantha was clear that she was devastated by the loss of her teammate and the ensuing grief they were all experiencing. But she also cautiously wondered if this was a turning point for each of them personally and collectively, a turning point that would allow them to navigate deeper, more meaningful territory moving forward together. This morning's lesson from the book of Jeremiah 
tells of another turning point in a relationship. Now, I don't imagine that those who wrote of God's greatness in the very beginning of humanity thought of their relationship with God as lacking, but it was markedly different after a certain experience. The Israelites came to know God in a particular way while they were in exile. They complained about their plight every step of the way, vehemently declaring God's existence was not possible because of the suffering they were enduring. But in spite of themselves, it was through that experience that they came to know God in a deeper way. The displacement, the loss, the vulnerability, the failure, the sadness, those were the moments when they realized exactly how close God was to them. And they were forever changed. The new covenant that God points towards in this text from Jeremiah is one that is not written in stone, but on the heart's of God's people. It is no longer something external, but something personal. I will be their God and they shall be my people. While it is difficult to imagine the Israelites wishing for a return to their time of exile, they and their ancestors forever experienced a different kind of relationship with God after all that they had been through. Now I want to be clear that noticing and appreciating God's presence is not is not the same thing as attributing hard things to a divine puppeteer. My point is not to say that God puts us through difficult things to teach us to be tougher or that God only gives us what we can handle, neither of which ever come up in Holy Scripture. My point is simply to restate God's point in the book of Jeremiah. God's people shall know the Lord in a new way, and so shall we. It is only through the lens of the exile that we can fully understand Jesus. And as modern Christians, we are guilty of forgetting the first half of the story because we're more familiar with the second half of Holy Scripture. But the people whom Jesus taught, the people whom Jesus healed and ate alongside, still had the narrative of the exile alive and well in their daily lives. Frankly, Jesus's ministry in that place with those people simply does not make sense without the exile as the backdrop. Every covenant before Jesus's resurrection points to God's continued intention to be known to God's people, not simply as something written in stone, but as a matter of the heart. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God made all those years ago. The cross demonstrates the depth of the relationship that God desires more than anything else. At the time when Jesus' ministry was in full swing, it did not feel like the exile had come to an end. The Israelites had returned to Israel, but they were living under the oppression of the Roman army. The disciples felt closest to Jesus in the moments when they recalled the trials of their exile and all that their ancestors had endured. The disciples were able to touch and smell and eat alongside this audacious embodiment of the words that they had grown up with from the prophet Jeremiah. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jesus brings to them a relationship that was so much deeper and much more enduring than anything they ever could have imagined. 
Jesus sits with them as they confront the disappointment, the loss, and the vulnerability that was their current reality. And they are changed because of him. This morning's reminder that God wrote God's covenant on the heart of God's people is not just for Israelites whose ancestors are long dead or for the imperfect disciples who walked with Jesus. This morning's reminder about the nature of God's covenant is for each of us. So do not sit here and think and presume to think that you are alone in struggling to figure out how God might speak to your current suffering and everyone around you is living a different reality. Do not sit here this morning and assume that your doubt about God's presence after your sister's diagnosis, your impending vocational shift, or the fraying of your relationship with your spouse indicates that God is further away from you than everyone else. Exile was a very practical march through a foreign land for the Israelites. But exile is most plainly a state of separation. The wisdom and gift of the Israelites' exile was the enduring knowledge that God was never closer to them than in those moments of loss, vulnerability, sadness, and separation. So, know that in your seasons of exile, it is God in the flesh who longs to be near to you. Amen.